0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me fix bubble's What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an off You talking to me? Straight out of the train. I don't know who you are. Why I'm so when simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's Lion! Snap out of it. If they call me Mr. Oh, Boy's best friend, Mother. You have no style. You work all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I survived my trip to the Pacific Northwest and managed to be the only person in my family who didn't get sick over the holidays. I was feeling pretty goddamn lucky until I experienced my first flight diversion coming back home, and that just full-on sucked. I got stuck in an airport, basically in the desert for two hours, and then when they flew us back to the airport we were originally supposed to land at, I experienced the worst 20 minutes in a plane I've ever had to go through in my life, and I'm not eager to get back on a plane as a result. The moral of this story is, not only can the city of Los Angeles not take a little rain, neither can its airports. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Menu and Babylon. First, the good. The menu reminded me a lot of Triangle of Sadness, which I talked about a couple of months ago. The film is a pitch black comedy about the death of art the moment fame and fortune is introduced. Everything about this movie, from the performances to the climax of the film, was just aces and so much fun and a breath of fresh air, which is ironic given how claustrophobic this film is overall. Finally seeing it, this is one of the rare instances that I actually got why the word of mouth on this film was so strong i'd say more about it but this is a film best experienced without knowing too much about what is going on before you actually get into the theater though it is on hbo max but you should really see it in a theater I also went to a restaurant tonight. I'm recording this on Friday night that has like a special tie in with the movie. Um, It has they're doing Margot's like special meal at the end to avoid spoilers. If you've seen it, you know what I ta- I'm i talking about. And it was really good. It's called Irves, and it's in West Hollywood. And if you're in L.A. for the month of January, me and my buddy had a great time. It was real good. <laughs> also, hello, Dan. I know you're listening to this. But yeah, overall, really fun movie. And on that same night I saw the menu, I saw the audacity that was Babylon, which has been irritating me for the last four or five days since I saw it. When this film was good, it was phenomenal, but when this film was bad, you wanted to rip your eyeballs out. The only explanation I've been able to come up with as to why this movie was A so long and B so bad is that Paramount must have let Damien Chazelle, the director, have final cut. There's absolutely no reason that this film should have been three hours long. There should have been half as many characters as there were, and the multiple storylines got so convoluted and were handled so sloppily that it was clear to me that it had to have overwhelmed Chazelle in post. That's the only explanation I could come up with. The development of the characters in this character-driven story were so paper-thin because there are too many of them. If Chazelle wanted to have this many storylines and characters and whatever to tell This particular story, this could have made a great miniseries, but it made a horrific film. Also, there's a scene at the end where one of the characters reflects on his place within the echelon of movie history, and it features the absolute worst montage I have ever seen. I think it was supposed to be like awe inspiring and overwhelming for the character based on the crazy jazz number playing underneath it, but it just frustrated the holy hell out of me and everyone around me. I could hear like the scoffing and the ugh. So it wasn't just me. This was this was a consensus I felt within the theater. The bright light for this film, the acting is phenomenal, but you've got Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt as your leads, so that was to be expected. In the end, this was a three-hour, slapped-together, dramatized montage of things that happened in Hollywood during the silent era, portrayed by made-up characters. Except Irving Thalberg was inexplicably around and played by someone who looked nothing like him. Anyway, rant over, go see the menu, skip Babylon. Before I get into the meat of today, I wanted to mention at the top of the episode, but going forward, I'll have it in the end, that I got a Letterboxd account as an experiment, so I can create watch lists for episodes when I get the time. So if you want to check that out at the link in the show notes or just by looking up the Tinsel Factory in the app... You'll find me. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's essentially a social media type app that lets you kind of log the movies that you've seen and rate them. And it's, it's pretty cool. I don't know how I didn't learn about this sooner, but I've been having fun with it. And if you're listening to this, I'm guessing you may enjoy it as well. I'm also keeping a diary of everything I watched this year and I'm trying to watch a new film each day. We'll see how far I get. And now... On to this week's topic. He was known the world over as the Latin Lover, a name given to him by the movie moguls who made him a movie star. He had the world at his feet and a legion of adoring female fans, and all of it was snuffed out in an instant. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. <laughs> Alright, in my best Olive Garden Italian pronunciation skills, Rudolfo Pietro Filiberto Raffaello Guglielmi di Valentina di Antogula, but for the sake of everyone's sanity, we're just going to call him Rudolfo or Rudolf Valentino, was born on May 6th, 1885, in Castellaneta, Italy, the middle child of a former soldier turned veterinarian and a lady-in-waiting for a local Marques. Rodolfo was a striking child by all accounts, nicknamed Mercury after the Roman god because of how energetic he was, and he also got away with a lot of cheeky childhood behavior as a result of his energy and him just being a very cute kid. This behavior was enabled by his mother, but heavily chastised by his father, who would die of malaria when Rodolfo was just 11. After being rejected from the Italian army for being quote-unquote too frail, Rodolfo left his native Italy for France to find work at age 17. When this venture failed, he emigrated to the United States through Ellis Island in 1913 with $4,000 and business cards with a fake family crest on them. Rodolfo never filled out naturalization paperwork and therefore maintained his Italian citizenship for the rest of his life. Soon, the future actor had blown through his four grand and would be working as a dishwasher in a nightclub and also as a gardener whom sometimes had to live on the streets. Overall, he was just living kind of a roguish, devil-may-care existence. Despite by all accounts being a super attractive dude, Rudolfo never considered a film career. His focus had always been on making it in the new world, not fame and fortune. But sometimes, our fates find us. The pictures first came for Rodolfo in 1914, and he started his film career as an uncredited performer and extra. Don't go looking for this early work, though. All of these films are lost. This new gig wasn't enough to cover expenses, however, and Rodolfo also procured work as a dance partner for the wealthy female patrons of the swanky nightclub Maxim's. No longer a dishwasher for the club, this new gig as a lounge lizard exposed him to the upper echelons of New York's high society. Handsome European men were a premium commodity there, and the tall, dark, and handsome Rodolfo di Valentina, as he would rechristened himself, certainly fit that bill. While you'd think these budding connections would help Rodolfo break into the pictures, it didn't help him out in the way he probably would have preferred. He was soon hired as a gardener by Blanca de Sals, a Chilean heiress. The two became close, and he would even testify at her divorce hearing, claiming that her husband had committed adultery. There were also rumors that Blanca and Rodolfo had also been carrying on an affair, but there was never any concrete proof. When Blanca ultimately shot and killed that husband in 1917, Rodolfo fled New York City with a musical troupe convinced that if he was involved in yet another sensationalized trial, he'd never work again, or worse, get deported. The troupe's travels led our hero to Utah, where they ultimately disbanded. By the fall, Rodolfo found himself in San Francisco performing in a play. While there, Valentino met actor Norman Kaiser, later carried to hide his German background, who convinced the 22-year-old to try his hand at the picture business. This advice would ultimately lead Rodolfo to Los Angeles sometime in 1917 by way of dancing in Al Jolson's of Jazz Singer fame's touring company, where he and Carrie would become roommates at the Alexandria Hotel. Carrie was already relatively connected in Los Angeles and would introduce Rodolfo to producers he knew in the hopes of finding his buddy some work. This panned out modestly well in these early days, with the actor earning about $5 a day. Rudolfo moved out on his own to a spot on Sunset Boulevard and began solely seeking out acting work he'd kept up the dance-side hustle when he'd first arrived in 1918. This was no easy feat, as the dark-featured Italian man was considered too ethnic-looking to be a leading man like he'd wanted, so he had to settle for the heavies instead, aka the bad guys, gangsters, and gigolos. By 1919, he'd carved out a pretty nice little career with the bit parts he could get. One of his earliest was in the drama Eyes of Youth that caught the attention of screenwriter June Mathis, who thought the actor would be perfect for her next project, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Turns out the fates had smiled on Rodolfo as he'd read and become transfixed with the source material for this film and one day just happened to stroll into Metro Pictures, where June Mathis worked, inquiring about the film's rights after hearing that they had them. Soon, Mathis would be a major collaborator of Rodolfo's for nearly all of his career. But before we get to that, it was around this time that Rudolfo would change his name once and for all to the more American-sounding Rudolph Valentino. This was done at the suggestion of a young actress he'd caught in the feels for named Jean Acker. Rudolph married Acker on November 6, 1919, after just a two-month courtship that began after meeting at a party. The two had been in their own personal ruts at the time, Rudolph's stemming from his frustration with his career and Acker's from being heartbroken over a recent breakup. According to Acker, she'd pitied him and agreed when he'd spontaneously floated the idea of marriage. Acker almost immediately regretted the union and locked her new husband out of their bedroom on their wedding night, crying out that she'd made a terrible mistake. It probably bears mentioning at this point that Acker was a closeted lesbian who in part married Rudolph in an attempt to hide this. Their marriage was likely never consummated, and as far as I could find, the two never even lived together. So now, with a sham marriage and being typecast as a heavy, Rudolph floated the idea of moving back to New York, having, in his mind, failed to break into Hollywood. But Rudolph was about to become a movie star. So now it's time to go back to June Mathis and her script for The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. After a little bit of advocating on Mathis's part, Rudolph was cast as Julian Desnoyers, the flirtatious grandson of an Argentine landowner whose life of relative ease and luxury is abruptly ended by the onset of the Great War or World War I if you're bad at history. Desnoyer's family is split on the German and French sides of the war and the family is ultimately destroyed literally and figuratively as a result. In perpetuity, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse has become considered one of the first anti-war films in the history of cinema. When released on March 6, 1921, the film was a hit across the board, becoming one of the first films to make over $1 million at the box office. This success made it the biggest hit of 1921 and the sixth highest grossing silent film of all time. And of course, the film made an international star out of Rudolph Valentino this would also be the film that would start out his legacy as the Latin lover. For whatever reason, though... Metro Pictures didn't really recognize the fact that they just created a movie star, and a huge part of Horseman doing as well as it did was because of Rudolph, particularly because of a famous scene in which his character does the tango. The likely reasoning behind this probably has something to do with Rex Ingram, the director of Four Horsemen, who reportedly had a pretty high lack of faith in Rudolph. So, for Rudolph's next film, Metro refused to give him a much-deserved raise and forced him into bit parts like in the B-picture Uncharted Seas. While the film reportedly is not that great, the time turned out to not be a total loss for the actor, as it was on this film that he met his second wife, costume designer Natasha Rambova. The two worked together on Rudolph's next film as well, Camille, in which the actor played the love interest of the titular character. It was on this film that Rambova, who'd not been particularly interested in Rudolph in the beginning, began to see his potential. Only after shaping his eyebrows, making him lose weight, slicking back his hair and hipping up his clothes, did she begin to reciprocate his advances. By the halfway point in shooting Camille, the two were deeply in love. Rambova, whose birth name was Winifred Shaughnessy, was a highly educated and cultured woman from Salt Lake City, Utah, who believed she could shape a movie star whom could make her star rise in tandem. And spoiler alert, that's more or less what she did. It didn't take long for her to attempt to take control of every aspect of her lover's films, as well as his public persona. Feeling disrespected by Metro, Rudolph more or less led her. Despite still being married to Acker, Rudolph moved into a studio apartment with Rambova, where the two lived from paycheck to paycheck, as Rudolph was a far cry from making movie star money. Rambova continued her transformation of Rudolph into a sophisticated performer and even hatched a plan for them to make money. They would have his fans send them 25 cents and they would send them a picture of Rudolph. It was so successful, in fact, that the duo spent a lot of this time living off of quarters. 1921's Uncharted Seas and later Camille would both fail to drum up audience or critic love, in the way that Horseman had, which led to growing frustration for Rudolf. He was helpless to stop Metro from squandering his career. Rudolph's final film for Metro was 1921's The Conquering Power, which was loved by critics but was a box office failure. Rudolf quit Metro in 1921 and was quickly signed by famous players Lasky, which would eventually merge into several other companies to become Paramount Pictures. Mathis would soon follow him, which angered Rambova. Unlike those schmucks at Metro, Jesse Lasky, head of production at Famous Players, knew exactly what to do with their new star, whom they paid nearly double his Metro salary when brought on board. Lasky intended to capitalize on Rudolph's already established star power and cast him in a role that solidified his reputation as the Latin lover. Rambova thought the script for 1921's The Chic was terrible, but the couple needed the money, so Rudolph accepted. Based on the 1919 best selling novel of the same name, Rudolph played the leading role of Sheik Ahmed Ben Hassan, who kidnaps a woman to go back to his tent to essentially sexually assault. But she falls in love with him later, so in 1921 Brain, that makes it okay. Of course, the very idea of this premise overloads the problematic scale of 2023, but when the film released 102 years ago in November of 1921, it was a major success and defined not only Rudolph's career, but his image and legacy as the Latin lover. Women fell head over heels in love with the chic, catapulting the actor further into the stratosphere. He was different than what most leading men of this era looked like essentially, a corral of clean shaven Chrises in the modern sense, but way less sexual. I think the kids would call it a simp nowadays. It's like very like demure. One of the documentaries I saw referred to them as flaccid, but I didn't like that, but here I am describing it. They just weren't manly men, in any sense really, not even in a modern sense, just at all. The chic was dangerous and macho and an affront to the morals of the day, but he also needed a good woman to protect him and soften those edges. He was a moody bad boy in a leather jacket with an affinity for poetry before we had moody bad boys in leather jackets with affinities for poetry. Scores of fan letters from adoring, mostly female fans, poured in, many featuring risque photos of the sender attempting to coerce the Sheik, into some quality time, if you catch my drift. Young women were also caught trying to run away to the Sahara in the hopes of locating the Sheik. And it wasn't just the women who were affected. Men slicked their hair back to mimic Rudolph's style to appease their women's. Rudolph's image was such a major part of men's fashion at this time that when the actor grew a goatee for a role, the American Barbers Association freaked out. Despite all of this, Rambova was not satisfied with what the sheik had done for her boyfriend's career, and she attempted to become increasingly involved in his films as a result. She wanted them to be more artistic. Rambova would achieve this by essentially taking over productions as a producer, design the sets and the costumes, and more or less direct the film. Comics at this time would come out mocking the couple's desire to make art, while audiences flocked to other similar stars' as films instead. Four feature films followed for Rudolph in the next year, and a half after The Sheik, including 1922's Blood and Sand, in which Rudolph played a bullfighter. After the production of Blood and Sand wrapped, Rudolph and Rambova did something a little bit dumb. Three days after the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse had released in March of 1921, Gene Acker had filed for divorce from Rudolph, citing desertion. In the proceedings, Acker's lawyers used a series of, I don't want to say weird, let's say arty photographs of Rudolph posing with a flute, and also other ones of him dressed as an indigenous person, all without a shirt on, to prove the desertion. (laughs) Just look at what he was doing with his mistress. Acker's lawyers also had the couple followed by a PI who was chased away by Rambova's pet lioness. They're living in a one bedroom, not even a one bedroom. They're living in a one room apartment and they've got a goddamn lion. What the hell was going on in Hollywood in the 20s? Once Rudolph brought up the fact that Acker had locked him out of their bedroom on their wedding night, the judge would ultimately blame Acker for desertion, not Rudolph, and the divorce was granted in March 1922. Acker then sued Valentino for the legal right to call herself Mrs. Rudolph Valentino, even though that wasn't even his legal name and not a name she ever went by, but you know, semantics. And also, she had a girlfriend for the entirety of this time, an actress, Grace Darmond. So I'm guessing this was just for the sake of being petty. It's just so, ugh. It's so petty. Despite that, the right to call herself Mrs. Rudolph Valentino and alimony was ultimately granted to her, and Rudolph remained angry with the actress for several years, but they would ultimately make amends. So what's the dumb thing that Rudolph did? Well, this brain surgeon decided not to wait the one-year required period between marriages that was compulsory in California at this time before tying the knot with Rambova. The couple tried to loophole the situation in Mexico and got married on May 13, 1922, and the actor was charged with bigamy and tossed in jail when he returned to the United States. Famous players refused to cover his bail to punish him and Rambova for essentially just being major pains in their asses, so several of his friends raised the money for him. The ensuing trial for his bigamy was a sensation, as the Latin lover had to, for the second time in his life, enter a not-guilty-by-reason-of-non-consummation plea, and Rudolf and Rambova were forced to have their marriage annulled for a year. The ensuing scandal, you'd think, would kind of like mess with this public image, but it actually made him more popular. This was like this sexy actor with a little dalliances with the law. So attractive. And the charges were ultimately dismissed, so he wasn't a criminal. Hooray. But yeah, this he he completely unscathed. Blood and Sand was a success. Critics called it a masterpiece on par with his previous work. And the film became one of the top grossing movies of 1922 and broke attendance records. During his forced break from Rambova, the pair began working separately on the Mathis-penned The Young Raja from 1922. The film did not live up to expectations and underperformed at the box office. Rudolph blamed what he deemed to be a poor showing on his part on the fact that he couldn't be around his girlfriend. Given everything that was going on, it comes as no surprise to report that during this time, Rudolph and Rambova began to consider leaving Famous Players. After speaking with his lawyer, the actor declared a one-man strike in the form of a lawsuit against Famous Players Lasky. At the time of the filing, Rudolf was earning $1,250 per week, and he wanted substantial more than this. The standoff intensified in September 1922 when Rudolph refused to accept paychecks from famous players until the dispute was resolved. Because Rudolph owed them hella money he had been lent to pay off his first wife, famous players countersued. Unfazed by this, Rudolph stood his ground, and it didn't take much longer for famous players to change their tunes a little bit. You see, they were in a bit of a bind at this time. The year prior, they had to shove a slew of Fatty Arbuckle films after the actor was accused of assaulting a woman in his hotel room. They couldn't afford to lose their best dramatic star now that their comedic one was embroiled in a high-profile scandal as well. The studio tried to settle with Rudolph by raising his salary to $7,000, a week, but Rudolph angrily declined. He then changed his narrative for the reason for the lawsuit, claiming that he'd filed it because his priority was more to gain artistic control over his work than to make more money. This was more than likely a move to save face, as there were millions of people who would have gladly taken $7,000 a week, and he didn't want to alienate the people paying to see his movies. In fact, in an open letter to PhotoPlay magazine titled Open Letter to the American Public, Rudolph argued his case for the largely unsympathetic readership as to why he should be getting more money because of art, and that readership, on average at this time, made maybe $2,000 a year at most. In response, famous players then made their own public statements about Rudolph, claiming him to be more trouble than he was worth, and that he was a temperamental artist and basically just a straight-up diva. That character assessment didn't dissuade other studios and executives, though, and several began courting him. However, famous players exercised its option to extend his contract, barring Rudolph from accepting any acting employment other than with the studio. By this point, Rudolph was about 80 grand in debt. Although he couldn't work as an actor, he could accept other types of employment to fund he and Rambova's lavish lifestyle. In late 1922, Valentino met George Allman, who soon became his business manager, and one of his first acts as such was convincing the Mineralava Beauty Clay Company they sold exactly what you think they did to hire his new client as a spokesman. Surely his legion of female fans would be interested anything he endorsed. Rudolph and Rambova were offered $7,000 per week to tour the U.S. and Canada, where they would dance, and Rudolph would judge beauty pageants sponsored by the company. On March 14, 1923, Rudolph and Rambova legally remarried at the Lake County Courthouse in Indiana. Paramount would cave to the couple's wishes further, and Rudolph accepted an offer from Ritz-Carlton Pictures to work as a loan out their famous players, which included $7,500 a week, full creative control over his films, and being allowed to shoot in New York. Their first film under this new contract was Monsieur Beaucaire with Rudolph in the titular role. The film did poorly because American audiences found Rudolph to be too effeminate in it. They wanted their rogue chic, not this fancy man with beauty marks and powdered wigs. This film didn't do all that great, but Rudolph was still loved by women, which meant he was hated by men, despite their emulation of his look. So dudes by and large were thrilled when they saw this guy that their wives couldn't stop talking about being like a fancy man and boy care, and several of them relished in this apparent fall from grace. When several articles accused Rudolph of being a homosexual, he gave the very toxically masculine response of essentially, come fight me, bro. That's right. Rudolph Valentino invited his critics, namely one from the Chicago Tribune, to fisticuffs in the boxing ring. Rudolph kind of boxes as a hobby. This call was answered by a New York reporter, and the two did actually go toe to toe in a prearranged bout that saw Rudolph the victor. Rudolph's next film was his last for famous players. In 1924, he starred in A Sainted Devil. The film started out strong at the box office, but attendance was not steady and the film was considered a failure. With his contract for famous players finally fulfilled, Rudolph was free to explore other career prospects once he finished his other commitment to rinse Carlton pictures, that is. His next film was a pet project called The Hooded Falcon. The production was riddled with problems from the start, beginning with the script written by June Mathis. The Valentinos were dissatisfied with Mathis' version and requested that it be rewritten. Mathis took this as a big-ass insult and did not speak to Rudolph for almost two years as a result. So, Rambova took up screenwriting, responsibilities in addition to designing costumes, and Rudolf worked on the film Cobra. He agreed to shoot the film only if it was released after the Hooded Falcon. After wrapping Cobra, Rudolph and Rambova sailed for Europe to procure costumes and buy authentic antiques for the production of the Hooded Falcon. Upon their return, Ritz Carlton was not super stoked to discover that Rambova and Rudolph had spent three times what the agreed-upon budget for the film on props, and costumes was. In response, Ritz Carlton terminated the deal with the couple. The film was never made, and the fallout earned the duo the nickname The Double Hernia. Despite that charming nickname, Rudolph wasn't on the unemployment line for long, as Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks approached him to join the roster of their new company, United Artists. Rudolph's contract gave him $500,000 per year, plus royalties. The major thing of note in this new contract, however, was the fact that if he was to join United Artists, Rambova would be completely banned not only from the payroll, but also from the set. The money was too much to turn down, and Rudolph signed the contract, secretly hoping this would make his wife want to settle down and start a family. Instead, it caused a massive rift in their marriage. In an attempt to placate Rambova, George Ullman, who had negotiated the contract with United Artists, and who likely wanted to control Rudolf himself, offered Rambova 30 k to finance a film of her own. This would become her only officially directed film, titled What Price Beauty, which shot in spring 1925, the studios ensure that this and her next film, When Love Grows Cold, which featured her only acting credit, failed. For his first UA film, Rudolph chose The Eagle, during the production of which he announced he was taking a quote, marital vacation. He and Rambova did a photo shoot at the train station in Los Angeles, announcing her plans to go to New York and ultimately France to pursue other work opportunities. During the filming of The Eagle, rumors of infidelity involving Rudolph with his co-star were reported and vehemently denied by both. While promoting the film, it came out that he and Rambova were divorcing. The blame was squarely placed on Rambova's shoulders, and the press portrayed her as a selfish and career-minded woman who wouldn't settle down and have babies, so she broke her husband's heart. Not all of us want to have babies. If the rules had been reversed in all of this, Wimbova would have been treated completely differently, but we don't have time for sexual politics today. Girl was ahead of her time. Yes, she was intense, but if she had done all this stuff and she was a dude, no one would have batted an eye. Broken hearted, it would be nearly a year before Rudolph made another film. His next was The Son of the Sheik, a sequel to the 1921 film that had made him a star. He agreed to make this film despite his hatred of the Sheik image. The film began shooting in February of 1926, and Rudolph was plagued with illness during the filming, but he needed the money to pay off as many debts, so he powered through. The film opened on July 9, 1926, to great fanfare. It was during this premiere that Rudolph reconciled with Mathis. Less than two months later, he'd be gone. On August 15th, 1926, Rudolph Valentino collapsed at the Hotel Ambassador in Manhattan. He was rushed to the hospital and diagnosed with appendicitis and gastric ulcers and went into emergency surgery. After that surgery, Valentino developed peritonitis, which is the inflammation of the inner abdominal lining, and his condition continued to deteriorate. Rudolf suffered a flare-up of pleuritis, which is inflammation of the chest cavity, which developed rapidly in his left lung due to his already weakened state. Doctors realized that he was going to die, but as was common practice at this time, they chose to withhold this information from their patient. It has been said that until his last breath, Rudolf Valentino believed that he would recover. During the early hours of Monday, August 23rd, 1926, Rudolf was briefly conscious and chatted with his doctors about his future, but soon lapsed into a coma. He died just a few hours later at the age of 31. Following his death, doctors who treated the actor confirmed that he had died of sepsis. It would turn out that he'd never had appendicitis, rather perforated ulcers. This condition would eventually be referred to as Valentino syndrome, which is when perforated ulcers mimic the symptoms of appendicitis. The sudden dramatic death of Rudolph Valentino devastated women and men the world over. There were even reports of suicides of devastated female fans. An estimated 100,000 people lined the streets of Manhattan around the funeral home to pay respects. Mourners were allowed to enter and view the body at a rate of 9,000 people per hour. Windows were smashed as fans tried to get into the funeral home that held the actor's body, and an all-day riot erupted on August 24th. There were rumors that Rudolph's publicity team had hired people to rile up the other mourners. Over 100 mounted officers and NYPD's police reserve had to be dispatched to restore order. So here's some like, Chaos that also went on. Polish actress Polinegri, claiming to be the late Rudolph's fiance, collapsed in hysterics while standing over the coffin. Four actors were hired to impersonate a fascist black shirt honor guard, and it was alluded that they were sent by Mussolini. This was not the case. There were media reports that the body on display was not Valentino, but a decoy. This was continuously denied. One rumor stated that the actor had been poisoned by a jealous husband. There was no proof of that. Hearing of her ex-husband's death, Rambova took to her bedroom, refusing to eat for three days, and when she came out of her bedroom, she announced that she wished to call a medium because she wanted to contact her dead ex-husband. And I'm sure there was many, many other crazy things that happened, but you get the idea. In short, Rudolf Valentino's death unleashed sheer pandemonium. Rudolph's New York funeral was held on Monday, August 30th at St. Malachi's Roman Catholic Church, often called the Actors Chapel. After that mass, his remains were taken by train to California. His West Coast funeral was held at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills, and the public obsession there almost caused a riot as well. Since the 31-year-old had made no instructions for his final resting place, newly reacquainted friend June Mathis arranged what was supposed to just be a temporary solution. She offered a crypt that she had previously purchased for her ex-husband for Rudolph's early resting place. Coincidentally, she died the following year and was interred in the adjoining crypt that she had purchased for herself. Rudolph was never moved to a new location, and to this day, the two remain interred next to each other at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is within spitting distance of the studio that made them both stars in their own rights. Despite a tragically short life, Rudolph Valentino's legacy is long. After his death, many of his films were reissued to help pay his estate expenses, a practice that continued well into the 1930s, long after the death of the silent film. Several books were written about the actor, including one by Ram Over the years, a woman in black carrying a single red rose would come to mourn at Rudolph's grave, most often on the anniversary of his death. Several myths surround the original woman, though it seems that this first woman in black was actually just a publicity stunt. A woman named Deetra Flame claimed to be the original woman in black, but there's no proof that she actually was, and several copycats have followed over the years, and the tradition actually continues to this day. We don't know for certain who the original woman in black is, but the current one is motion picture historian Carrie Bible. Hollywood High School's mascot, the Sheik, is in honor of the actor, and Rudolph is said to haunt just about every place in Hollywood he ever haunted in his waking life. Despite being gone for nearly a century, the legacy of the Latin lover lives on. Rudolph Valentino remains one of the brightest stars in the Hollywood sky, a trailblazer struck down in his prime who opened the door for a generation of dark, mischievous on-screen men that would follow with the advent of sound. Despite never being heard upon the silver screen, Rudolph Valentino's contribution to it lives on. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I am relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find me, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got buy me a coffee for those late nights where I am up writing scripts. I am drinking a gin and tonic right now because it is 1230 in the morning. So no coffee, but typically there's coffee and I need it. Hell, buy me a cocktail. I'll take that too. I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, the life and career of the great stone face, Buster Keaton. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.